0: to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt and find more birds this spring.
1: Oh, 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 O'Reilly!
0: You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts
1: has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart the professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly! Auto Parts.
0: Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance access deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful, you can become a snack subscriber Get some Axis Deer Sticks sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I venison.com and use promo code Cal for 20% off your first order.
1: From Mediator's World News Headquarters in Bozeman, Montana, this is Cal's Weekend Review presented by Steel. Steel products are available only at Authorized Dealers. For more, go to steeldealers.com. Now, here's your host, Ryan Cal Callahan.
0: The California Game and Fish Commission voted unanimously last month to block a request that would have canceled the black bear hunting season this fall. The Humane Society of the United States petitioned for the hunting ban earlier this year. They argued that wildfires may have harmed the black bear population and the state should prohibit bear hunting until a more thorough population survey could be conducted. The folks at the Humane Society obviously don't listen to Cows We Can Review. As we've covered on this podcast, wildfires rarely have population level effects on animals. While some individuals die, especially in large and fast-moving blazes, large animals are often able to escape the firewall and return to their original territory. That appears to be the case with California's black bears. The state biologist testified that there is no evidence of a steep decline of the state's bear population. In fact, The population has grown substantially in recent decades, and bears are expanding into places they haven't been in modern history. Plus, hunters harvest less than 5% of the bear population every year, so even if there was a decline, it wouldn't be due to the fall bear hunting season. In this case,
1: I think the science today, uh, after seeing these presentations, leads me to believe that the bear population is abundant and that there's no reason for immediate emergency action.
0: Um, if the folks who are on both sides want to have a debate over whether or not bears should be hunted at all, um, that this isn't the place to have that debate. This is a big win for hunters. As Travis Hall reports over at the TheMeatEater.com, black bear hunters showed up at the April 21 commission meeting in droves. About 20 hunters testified at the meeting in person, and another 127 spoke via Zoom. They specifically took issue with how the Humane Society characterizes hunters as trophy hunters. Listen to this. California hunter, Seth Watts. I am a hunter. My
1: grandfather was a hunter. My dad is a hunter. We are not trophy hunters. We hunt these animals and put in extreme amount of work to make it happen, if we're so lucky. Bear meat, to me and my family, feeds us throughout the year.
0: The hearing also demonstrated that the black bear population in California is healthy which will make it much more difficult for animal rights activists to go after bear hunting moving forward. That doesn't mean they won't try. The animal rights crowd has made it clear that their ultimate goal is to ban all hunting, and they seem to think bear hunting is an easy first step. Their attempts in California have failed so far, but there are lots of ways to change policy in the Golden State. If they can get enough people to sign a ballot petition to ban the cruel and heartless killing of fuzzy black bear cubs, because, you know, that's how they describe it to others, California will be well on its way to banning bear hunting. As a side note here, I was particularly struck with Commissioner Murray, who said by way of defense of hunting, quote, I don't particularly subscribe to the notion that just because most people don't do something, we should do away with it. Most people don't hunt. Most people don't fish. And that doesn't mean that people shouldn't have the ability to do it. That's not what democracy is. Only about 4.5% of Americans hunt, while around 20% fish. This week, we talk spearing, small cats, and skeeters. But first, I'm going to tell you about my week. And my week was pretty darn great. Jumped in with a couple of buddies and hunted eastern Oregon for turkeys. For the first time ever on this trip, the birds were very cooperative. I think it's because we got a break in the weather in between some storm systems. We managed to call in a bunch of birds got zero ticks, which is a record. We had some misses, which may have been more fun to watch than the perfect scenarios. Aside from the weather, I also chalk up this trip's success to patients, killing them with our butts instead of our feet. Uh, up. Uh, uh. We were also on a friend's private property, which is absolutely an advantage. But when it comes to turkeys, I'll tell you, if you're on public or private, a casual approach to a gobbling tom seldom gets the job done. Turkeys hear very well. They see incredibly well. So this time around, even though we were on private land, and even though we could hear birds gobbling, we started setting up just on the edge of where we were sure those birds could hear our calls. We didn't take any risks in setting up. This limited any unnecessary noise that can make a relaxed tom turn into a doubting thomas. I did use some like fighting hand type yelps in the afternoons that helped out quite a bit, but I also worked the small purrs and putts on the old Phelps slate call, and that really got the job done well. (laughs) The other thing I tried out on this trip was a 410 gauge shotgun, the style of which is very similar to a rifle. I outfitted this gun with a Vortex red dot, and used 3-inch Federal TSS loads in number 8 shot, I believe. This thing is a dream to carry around the woods. Super maneuverable. I killed both birds that I got this trip with it, both of which were really nice toms, one of which is like the nicest tom I've gotten in a long time. The first bird almost did an entire 360-degree circle around me over the course of probably 30 minutes. Eventually, he came into the back door, and I had to spin and shoot, and I killed him at about 15 feet. The second bird came in from downslope of a road cut, projecting his red head in a full periscope fashion above the edge of the road. I put the red dot on his head and squeezed the trigger, dead tom turkey. This one at 30 yards. I have to say, the pop of the 410 is a little anticlimactic, and unless you're confidently throwing pellets at the head and neck, I'd advise against taking a shot with one. Further, that TSS in a 12-gauge literally redefined what dead was the first time I used it. I was shocked. Those birds, with a load of number 9 shot TSS out of the 12-gauge, even in a 3-inch, not even a a 3.5, seemed to have the life sucked from them before the shot shell wad hit the grass. With the 410, there's plenty of flopping and kicking going on. Just my field notes for you. Moving on all the way back to April 2nd of this year. Angus LeBourne, a Mohawk citizen and member of the Haudenosaunee People Confederacy, speared 23 walleye on Scriba Creek near the Oneida Fish Hatchery in upstate New York. State conservation officers ticketed LeBourne for taking the fish during a closed season, by means other than angling, and in closed waters. Closed waters, meaning just upstream of the hatchery, and during a closed season, as this is when walleye are spawning. Then on April 5, LeBourne returned to Scriba Creek with 14 other men, and the group speared a total of 42 more walleye. This time, environmental conservation officers did not intervene. On April 9, state workers barricaded the parking lot around the hatchery to deter any more fishing. No surprise that this has been wildly controversial in the area, and on this show we take any deviation from state management of wildlife very seriously. So let's dig into at least some of the major issues in play. Laborne asserts that as a member of the Haudenosaunee, his right to hunt and fish in this area cannot be regulated by the state of New York. Back in 1788, New York Governor George Clinton, not to be confused with the legendary co-founder of Parliament Funkadelic, Signed a state agreement with the Oneida, which are members of the Haudenosaunee, which contains the following two clauses. With the exception of a reservation, quote, the Oneidas do cede and grant all their lands to the people of the state of New York forever. Unquote. But that agreement also grants the Oneidas, quote, and their posterity forever, the free right of hunting in every part of the said ceded lands and of fishing in all the waters within the same. New York signed similar agreements with surrounding nations in 1788 and 89. The Haudenosaunee dispute the legality of these documents, but if New York still finds them binding, the state must hold itself to their provisions. And in 1794, the still young U.S. federal government signed the Treaty of Canandaigua, which recognizes the Haudenosaunee's free use and enjoyment of their lands and further recognize their hunting and fishing rights on the lands where Scriba Creek and Oneida Lake are situated. Those state and federal treaties are still in effect and have been repeatedly affirmed by federal courts, including the Supreme Court, and so legally. LeBourne does have a leg to stand on here. However, that doesn't mean that spearing spawning walleye right next to a hatchery is winning him a bunch of friends. We spoke with Attorney Joe Heath, General Counsel for the Onondaga Nation, which is also part of the Haudenosaunee, who has been working on treaty hunting and fishing issues in this area for decades. Heath told us that before LeBourne set out, he should have asked permission from his Mohawk Nation, as well as from the Oneida and the Onondaga Nations, whose territory Scriba Creek runs through but he did none of the above and kind of ticked everybody off. However, friction and confusion around treaty-protected fishing and hunting in this area goes back a long, long time. Often, Haudenosaunee will present their identification, known as red cards, and get ticketed anyway, from ECOs, environmental conservation officers, doing their job trying to protect wildlife. If the ticket is contested in court, Typically, it's in a local jurisdiction before a judge unfamiliar with this thicket of very old and technical treaty law who's unsure how to rule. And, typically, it's in a local jurisdiction before a judge who is unfamiliar with this very old and technical treaty law who is unsure on how to rule. All of this leads to even more confusion and frustration. In an effort to resolve the issue last year, the New York State Senate unanimously passed S-5266, which would have allowed members of an Indian nation to hunt and fish according to their treaty rights without regulation by the state, provided that their activity followed the quote-unquote conservation necessity doctrine. The conservation necessity doctrine, you may ask, has been established and refined by courts across the country. It essentially comes down to this the state has to demonstrate that the treaty-protected hunting or fishing is causing irreparable harm to the species in question. If so, the doctrine provides a kind of emergency switch the state can use, but it's a very high bar. And, as much as a, you know, like, dedicated walleye-type person might think Angus LeBourne was being a jerk up there on Screeba Creek as of 2020, there were an estimated 1.2 million walleye in Oneida Lake. So, I'm torn. I'm a big believer in state regulation of wildlife. The system only works because we all adhere to the rules, and those rules have brought back dozens of species from the brink. But there is no way that LeBorn and his friends combined could cause irreparable harm to this resource in this place using this method of take. And, although LeBorn's action was extremely inflammatory, and, you know, more than likely intentionally so, the vast majority of hunting and fishing by the Haudenosaunee is completely in accord with good management. If S 5266 had become law in New York State, it would have given ECOs and local judges a very clear, modern statute to guide enforcement and trials. Native Americans with treaty rights wouldn't be bound by state fish and game laws unless they're causing irreparable harm. Joe Heath, the Onondaga attorney, consulted on the effort to draft and introduce the bill, and he believes it would have ended a lot of this friction. However, New York Governor Kathy Hochul vetoed the bill. A similar bill may come back to her desk in the future, but until then, confusing treaties from the 18th century still hold sway. If you were a non-Native American angler in the area, you're still likely ticked off, because going up and fishing at the hatchery is off-limits to you and spearing fish is incredibly fun, and that's off-limits to you, too. Now, if you're just any old angler that believes in healthy fisheries, you are likely worried that if there are parties out there not bound by any rules, we could be on a slippery slope to a bad place. But, according to Joe Heath, the Hodenoshone hold the protection of the natural world as one of their deepest core values. He says they have sought and continue to seek meetings and agreement with the State Department of Environmental Conservation, and he is confident all parties can come to an agreement on game management that protects everyone's rights and keeps walleyes abundant forever. Couple of things here. Old Chester and I may have caught the Montana state record walleye, which I may have mentioned here on this podcast. Impressive. And that walleye was, of course, a big female full of eggs. Taking that one fish, heavy with eggs, and just so you know, according to a fisheries reproduction journal I dug up from none other than the University of Wisconsin, an average rule, keep in mind this is average, is for every pound of female walleye in reproductive age, there's about 27,000 eggs per pound. Meaning that our girl could have been packing, let's say, upwards of half a million eggs. Her death and the removal of those eggs from the system would not have meant anything to the fishery, but we still put her back. Why is that? Well, I'll tell you this, that old adage of like eater-sized walleye and the big ones don't taste good is totally BS from what I've found out. The bigger the walleye fillet, I think the better they taste, but we still put her back. And one of those reasons is the optics. We didn't talk about it during the catch and release situation, but I don't think either of us want everyone taking big egg packing, long lived, and possibly genetically selected to grow that large walleyes out of the system. But we could have, which again is a big issue with this story. The optics of spearing right next to a hatchery during a spawn are just not great. And what happens if that activity? catches, you know, popular fire, and everybody's out there doing it. Then, yeah, in theory, it could have a population impact on a species. But in this case, it didn't impact the fishery either. Another thing I want to bring up, which has very little to do with this story. Andrew Clegg was my study partner in high school advanced placement history. And he's still a very good friend to this day. And if you're listening, Clegger, scoom which is an acronym for Seneca, Cuyahoga, Oneida, Onondaga, and Mohawk, which are the five tribes of the Iroquois nation. Now, that little tidbit never came up on a test or the final exam, but I know you haven't forgotten. A lot of people think that getting life insurance means you're insuring yourself for yourself, but it's actually the exact opposite. It's insuring yourself for your family. So, if something happens to me, and I'm not around anymore, I can have more peace of mind, that my family can have some financial support, and that's where Fabric by Gerber Life comes in. More than once in my life, my journey, people have described me as an independent person, and that's how I want to stay even when I'm dead. That's how I want to be remembered. That's why I have life insurance. Fabric by Gerber Life is term life insurance you can get done right here, right now. You could be covered from your couch in under 10 minutes with no health exam required. If you've got kids, and especially if you're young and healthy, the time to lock in low rates is now. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meatfabric.com slash cal. That's meatfabric.com slash cal. M-E-E-T. Fabric.com slash cow. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states, prices subject to underwriting and health questions.
1: Now a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often as the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from And make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER.
0: We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam motor treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. It's really simple. When you pour it in your gas tank, You know, regularly. People everywhere rely on seafoam to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. Help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Moving on to the Washington desk. I have new details for you on the Houses Act, recently introduced by Utah Senator Mike Lee. We covered this bill briefly in episode 155, but the full text of the legislation has since been released, along with a list of co-sponsors. The bill is creatively named the Helping Open Underutilized Space to Ensure Shelter Act, or Houses Act of 2022. Say what you want about our elected officials, but they know how to torture an acronym within an inch of its life, don't they? Now, I know what you're thinking. Why wouldn't we want to open underutilized space to ensure shelter? Mostly because what Senator Lee describes as underutilized is actually public land we all own and enjoy. The Houses Act has been billed as a way to address the national housing shortage. It's true that the home supply in the U.S. isn't meeting demand, which is part of the reason prices have spiked. That shortage, Senator Lee and his supporters argue, is enough to justify selling off public land for the purpose of building homes. Supply is not meeting housing demand in Utah, and the federal government's land ownership is a significant cause of our restricted housing stock, Senator Lee said in a statement. The Houses Act will free federal land in a responsible manner to keep the dream and promise of Utah alive. Doesn't that sound quaint? The bill aims to do this by lowering the bar a state or local government must overcome to nominate a piece of Bureau of Land Management land for purchase. Right now, BLM land can only be sold if there are no work or traffic rights. The land is isolated from other BLM land, and it was acquired for outdated purposes. The sale must also directly benefit the public and be able to clear an environmental review process. Under Senator Lee's bill, only existing rights on a parcel of land would disqualify that land from being developed. Meaning, no environmental review process. It doesn't need to be isolated from other BLM lands. It doesn't need to be proven that it was originally acquired for an outdated purpose. All you gotta prove is that nobody else is trying to develop it. If you read the text of the bill, which I really encourage you to do, you'll notice that it could sell public land on the cheap without actually building any houses. According to the text, 15% of each parcel of land could be used for commercial purposes. The remaining 85% can be used to build a wide variety of buildings, structures, and amenities that aren't houses. The land could be used for residential areas, but it could also be used for open space, green space, or allowable community amenities. These amenities include grocery stores, hospitals, police stations, schools, and recreational facilities, among others. In other words, Senator Lee is using a very real housing shortage to push legislation that would permit the sale of public land for an array of endeavors that are, once again, not houses. If you want a real clear picture of what this means, just drive from Tremonton, Utah, down to Spanish Fork. I'll bet you can't tell where one strip mall ends and the next begins. It gets worse, believe it or not. When considering whether to grant a state's request to purchase public land, the Secretary of the Interior is not permitted to consider whether the housing shortage could be addressed by building on another tract of land. The Secretary must issue a determination within one year, and if they fail to do so, the sale is automatically approved. A year might sound like a long time, but if you're talking about thousands of requests from across the entire country, I highly doubt that 12 months will be enough time to thoroughly vet every request. There are a few silver linings in the bill, if you really squint your eyes. The proceeds from the sale of the land will go back to interior and can be used for national park system, wildfire prevention, water infrastructure development, and critical habitat restoration most of which you won't need if you just leave the damn habitat alone. But, since the land will be sold for as little as 2% of fair market value, that's 2% of fair market value, it's hard to say that's much of a silver lining. The bill also does not allow the federal government to sell public land with special designations from Congress, such as national monuments, wilderness areas, or national recreation areas. But, since all other BLM land is up for grabs, It's hard to find comfort in this either. Theoretically, you could buy up the BLM land that surrounds a wilderness area. It's been done before. Any plans to purchase a public land must be approved by both the Secretary of the Interior and a state's governor. Those are two big hurdles. But those hurdles rise and fall with the political winds. Right now, the Interior Secretary and your governor might be defenders of public land. But after the next election, who knows? So far, Senator Mitt Romney of Utah and Senator John Barrasso of Wyoming have joined Senator Lee to conspire against us. I'm sorry, co-sponsor this legislation. These guys need to know how their constituents feel about putting grocery stores on public land. Get in touch with your duly elected today and let them know how you feel about S-4062, also known as the Houses Act. I would also encourage you to ask about provisions that would make this quote housing affordable enough to fix the housing issue. Would these senators also be willing to stipulate that since the land is proposed to sell far below market value, that the builders and sellers of homes need to also sell those homes at well below market value? At the very least, keep in mind, when you hear the Houses Act come up in the news, it's just an acronym. It doesn't mean housing. Moving on to the Canada Desk. A string of mountain lion attacks on Vancouver Island may be connected to a deadly disease that's ravaged the local deer populations. According to a recent report on CTV News, a denovirus hemorrhagic disease, or AHD, damages a deer's lungs and intestines and is often fatal, especially in fawns. It can also cause chronic problems like ulcers and abscesses in a deer's mouth and throat. The disease is most commonly found in western states like Oregon, Washington State, and Wyoming, along with Canadian provinces like British Columbia. As we covered back in episode 149, AHD appears to be affecting certain deer populations, especially on island ecosystems. Black-tailed deer have declined on Washington State's San Juan Islands, and the same thing appears to be happening on Vancouver Island. That should concern hunters, but another predator is also feeling the squeeze. Deer are a staple food item for mountain lions, but with fewer deer available. Biologists believe that the cats are looking to alternative food sources, specifically dogs. Or canines for the lapers. I'm not worried, because ever since I got Snort, those BJJ classes, she's pretty sure she can take on a mountain lion. But not every canine is as ferocious or cunning. CTV News reports that there have been at least five mountain lion attacks on pet dogs in recent weeks, which conservation officers on Vancouver Island describe as a spike in attacks. Four of the five dogs have survived their encounters. In one incident, a woman was walking with a pit bull off-leash when a cat jumped from behind some bushes and started to drag the 60-pound dog back into the shrubbery the woman, who was not the dog's owner and should receive some kind of medal for bravery, went after the mountain lion with an umbrella. The cat did what most sane people would have done, it dropped the dog and ran. The eight-year-old pooch sustained puncture wounds to the head, neck, and shoulders, but is expected to make a full recovery. Here's a fun fact for you. If you've ever been confused about the difference between mountain lions, cougars, pumas, and panthers, there's a good reason. All names refer to the same species of cat. The Puma con color, as we'd say in Montana, is the largest of the, quote, small cats. Small cats being a designation referring to felines that do not roar. Big cat, big roar. Small cat, no roar. Mountain lions are known by so many different names because they occupy the largest range of any terrestrial non-human mammal in the Western Hemisphere. You can find mountain lions from British Columbia to Argentina and pretty much everywhere in between. Because the cats are known by so many different people groups, they've been given a wide variety of names. Early Spanish explorers of North and South America called them León and gato monte, from which we get the name Mountain Lion. According to the San Diego Zoo, puma is the Incan word for cat, and cougar seems to have come from an old southern frat house. Sorry, South American Indian word couguacuarana, which was shortened to "cuguar. Sounds better when you say it like that. You gotta harness your interior Antonio Banderas. Cougar. Whatever you call them. It might be wise to keep your dog on a leash the next time you're going for a stroll on Vancouver Island. Buzzing over to the Skeeter desk, it's that time of year. Back in June of last year, we told you about Oxitec, a company that had started to release thousands of self-destructing Aedes aegypti mosquitoes into the Florida Keys. A. aegypti are the variety of mosquitoes that carry the Zika virus, and pesticides haven't worked to control their numbers. So finding a better solution would be a big public health win. The Oxitec scientists created genetically altered A. aegypti males to go out and mate with wild A. aegypti females. This alteration results in all female offspring having a genetic malfunction that kills them before they can mate. It also gave human parents across the country some extra powder when it came time to give kids, you know, the talk. You know, things that can happen during the mating process, children. The new male mosquitoes, however, are perfectly healthy, but they also carry the self-destruct gene. These new males breed with wild females, and the pattern repeats. All the new females die, and all the new males pass on more self-destruct DNA. This keeps going for generation after generation. More and more males pass self-destruct genes, more and more females dying before they can mate. Eventually, there are no A. aegypti females left, and with no one left to mate with, the non-biting last generation of genetically altered males dies. If everything goes according to plan, there will be no more A. aegypti, no more Zika, and no more genetic mutations remaining on the landscape. But... When some people hear genetically engineered organism, they think velociraptors hunting kids in abandoned commercial kitchens. There were numerous and vocal opposition groups to this study. As of April, Oxitec had collected more than 22,000 eggs fathered by the genetically altered males. Those eggs were brought back to the lab for study. Sure enough, all the females with the self-destruct gene did die before reaching adulthood. Aegypti males with the mutant genes were found in the wild for three months, but then they entirely died out. And no mutant Aegypti were found further than 400 meters from where the original males were released. Both of these findings provide some reassurance that we're not opening a genetic Pandora's box here, although more trials are necessary before mutant mosquitoes could be deployed at scale to wipe out Zika in an entire region. That day is coming closer. However, because this particular variety of mosquito only makes up about 4% of all mosquitoes in Florida, you sunshine staters are still going to be slapping yourselves on the back of the neck for the foreseeable future. That's all I've got for you this week. Thank you so much for listening. Remember, as these late snows start to pummel your blooming trees and branches start dropping, there's only one solution head on down to your local knowledgeable steel dealer. You can find that person. By going to www.steeldealers.com, they'll get you set up with what you need, and they won't send you home with what you don't. And lastly, and most importantly, write in to ASKCAL, that's askcal, at themeateater.com, and let me know what's going on in your neck of the woods. Thanks again, and I'll talk to you next week.